Hi friends, today we are talking about using repertoire that is not connected to a specific rhythmic or melodic concept. My name is Victoria Bowler and this is episode 54 of Elemental Conversations. This topic came from a colleague inside the planning binder and they uh, sent me a message asking about my thoughts about using repertoire that's not tied to a specific rhythmic or melodic teaching objective. Um, So the message said, how often do you integrate other repertoire that is not focused on preparing and practicing specific melodic or rhythmic concepts? Is it just when preparing for Christmas or spring concerts? This is a really good question, and it's something that comes up a good bit, especially when we are talking about developing some macro sequences for our curricula. Um, The macro sequences being, what does it look like to move musical knowledge, musical understanding from the earliest grades you see, maybe kinder, TK, JK, junior kindergarten, um, all the way through your upper grades, whether that be, you know, fourth, fifth, sixth, and beyond. What is the logical and artistic flow of musical concepts that is really going to build on the known to the unknown and spiral throughout the curriculum. So one of the very natural questions that comes up when we construct these big sequences of musical concepts, musical patterns, is how many elements of music are we going to have this trajectory for, right? Are we going to have a sequence for melody? Are we going to have, you know, and and even backing up from melody, are we going to have a sequence for pitch in general? Are we going to have a sequence for harmony? Are we going to have a sequence for form? Are we going to have a sequence for uh, things like expression? All of that stuff. So this is something that is absolutely worth considering. When I think about this question, There are a couple sub-questions that come up for me. One of my primary questions is, well, what is going into the learning process itself for these rhythmic and melodic concepts? So what does the rhythmic and melodic preparation and practice, what does that look like? Next, I'm curious about a conversation about the role of incidental learning. And then I'm also curious about how this might apply to different scheduling situations. Something that I want to point out, just so we're all on the same page, uh, we have talked already, just in this you know short introduction, we've talked about this idea of a sequence a lot. And so even though this conversation is about repertoire, we know that the repertoire we choose is going to be dependent on our goals for our teaching. So I just want to make sure that I've stated I'm not ignoring the repertoire piece of this question, But in order to answer it or in order to um, kind of talk around this conversation, we need to kind of back up and talk not just about the specific songs that we're using, but why we are using those songs in the first place. Having said that, this is a situation where there is, in my opinion, a very clear-cut answer to this situation, and it is uh, integrate other repertoire as often as you want and as often as you see it serving your students in the long run. That's it. 
Now, if we left it at that, this would be a very short episode. So I do want to dive into uh, some of my thinking around these decisions so that you have some of these questions floating around in the back of your mind as well. Uh, because the idea here is not that we should all be teaching the same repertoire at the same pace using the same sequence. That would be a bad situation. <laughs> that would be an unhelpful situation because each of our individual approaches to music learning is so unique and each of our settings um, is so unique as well. So these are uh, not as cut and dry answers, but these are some of the things that we should be thinking about. In my opinion, we should be thinking about as we are making some of these repertoire decisions. Let's talk about incidental learning experiences. These are the things as I uh, Google this definition, this is the Dictionary of Psychology from the American Psychological Association, uh, and it says that incidental learning is learning that is not premeditated or deliberate or intentional. And instead, this is learning that is acquired as a result of some other activity, possibly something that is unrelated to the actual learning that takes place. Some theorists believe that much learning takes place without any intention to learn. It occurs incidentally to other cognitive processing of information. Okay, so that's the definition. In my opinion, this is something that just makes intuitive sense. We know that students, we know that children, all humans really, are constantly learning. Students are always watching and listening and using the information that they see and hear. And sometimes we know that the lessons they pick up from us are not necessarily the lessons that we set out to teach. This also makes a lot of sense when we think about language development, about how much listening and speaking students are doing outside of their list of first grade sight words. Because students are hearing and they are engaging with language uh, in things like movies or TV or conversations with friends or um, the podcast that their mom is listening to in the car or the books that they have read or been read to. Uh, all of these things play into creating an aural landscape of language. And I think the parallel to music there is very strong. When we have deliberate learning experiences, we have a clear objective, and then we have an activity that meets that objective, and then we have an assessment to make sure that objective was met. This is the way we were taught to teach, right? Incidental learning is like all of that other stuff that takes place around the target objective. Students are always learning. Students are always watching. They are always listening. They are always intaking information from the music that we use in class. And this is really important. Uh, this incidental learning, all of this extra stuff, it creates the backdrop for oral awareness that students are going to use later. And this is a conversation that also ties into, um, if you are a music learning theory person, this might sound very familiar when we talk about the context for audiation. 
Now, MLT is not my area of study. You can absolutely find other uh, people to listen to for that. Go listen to Everyday Musicality if this is something that you want to learn more about. But I do want to uh, bring up this idea of audiation because this is something that I think is uh, very important to the music learning process. In audiation, students are collecting musical patterns and then they need to hold on to them and then they use those patterns as a way to make predictions in new situations. So we need those patterns to exist authentically before students can use them later in future learning activities. Students have what they need to do all of these different audiation processes when they have a context, an aural context for music, an aural landscape for uh, how to make patterns in music. And so much of that is outside of, this is a quarter note, it gets one beat, right? <laughs> that is all of the, uh, all of this stuff around our deliberate learning experiences that we facilitate as the teacher. These incidental learning experiences are very important for creating the backdrop of uh, musical norms. And just very quickly, we'll keep talking about this, but I do want to make a distinction here. If you are uh, familiar with informal learning like uh, Lucy Green or the work of Ruth Wright, um, this is, my understanding is that this is an interconnected field of study, field of learning, but it is distinct from that informal learning category um, that those authors in the literature have worked on. I also think about a connection here if we were to put on our Kodai hats and think about this quote about um, not teaching music as a system of algebraic symbols or a secret writing of a language with which a student does not have a connection. And instead, this quote from Zoltan Kodai says that the way should be paved for direct intuition. So part of this paving of a direct intuition uh, pathway is creating the context around music. So that's one of the things that I consider in this conversation about choosing repertoire that connects to different rhythmic or melodic or other musical ideas. Um, the idea that students are intaking a lot of information, a lot of musical information outside my target objective. One of the other reasons that that is true is that when we present music authentically, that is um, in the context of repertoire, there is not a way to separate rhythm from melody. And there's not a way to separate rhythm and melody from form and expression. There's not a way to separate uh, harmony or ensemble or texture. All of these things, all these elements of music are interdependent when they are presented uh, in an authentic way context. Now, if we only do a, like a drill or an exercise based curriculum, that's a different story. I am talking about music in the wild, right? Music, how it actually lives in the background of a podcast or a movie score or on the radio or whatever it is. These elements are interconnected. So we cannot get away from having learning experiences outside our teaching objective because this repertoire that we are using has other musical elements that are not strictly connected to the objective. That's just how repertoire works.
So one possible way of thinking about an answer to this question, how often do you use repertoire that's not specifically tied to a rhythmic or melodic learning objective? Um, all the time, every piece of repertoire we choose is connected to many other things besides the rhythmic or melodic primary secondary objective. I think that expression is a nice musical element to uh, also consider in this conversation, just as an example of what I mean here. If you can imagine someone singing through their entire teaching sequence from kindergarten, let's just say from uh, kindergarten through, let's imagine fourth grade, and everything they sing like this, doggy, doggy, where's your bone or come through in a hurry come through in a hurry and then all of a sudden in fourth grade this person sees on their teaching sequence that they need to teach students about musical expression and then out of nowhere this teacher is saying oh let's all sing with a nice flow of the phrase let's think about the most exciting moment in snail snail let's think about the musical expression that we really want to convey in alabama gal that kind of teaching is going to be very hard to suddenly implement if we have not been teaching music expressively all throughout those younger grades. Another very convenient way to illustrate this point that I like to think about, in my opinion, is form. Um, going back to Alabama Gal, it is absolutely impossible to sing and play the game to Alabama Gal. Even if my purpose for using Alabama Gal is a rhythmic focus, I cannot separate that rhythmic understanding from the form understanding of Alabama Gal. There's just not a way to separate the, the structural patterns in music from the other things like pitch or duration. So even if form is not the point of the lesson, we have to use form in order to understand the melodic content or the rhythmic content. Because when we are doing Alabama Gal, I'm going to say rhythmically which phrases match. And rhythmically, one, two, three match, and number four is different. If we are using it for a melodic objective, I'm going to say which phrases match, which um, melodic phrases match. And students are going to say one and three match, two and four are different. Another lens that I think can be useful in addition to all of this really important conversation about incidental learning and the interconnectedness of music. One of the main things that I think about in a question like this has to do with pedagogy. What does the learning process itself look like? And in my opinion, I think that this is an area that is open to a good amount of misinterpretation <laughs> because when we have conversations around preparing and practicing a rhythmic and melodic element, my fear is that the image a person could have is of students sitting on the ground looking at standardized Western notation on the board and learning how to read it and clap or read it and speak rhythm syllables or read it and sing it on solfege. It's a very one-dimensional view of music education. It's a very Western notation as the beginning, the middle, and the end of the learning process. And if we were to view the Kodai framework as a method for teaching standard notation, as the, the only aim of, of the Kodai um, viewpoint, I think that would be doing a huge disservice to the Kodai pedagogues who have put in such work into creating 
active and student-centered classrooms. And the reason I want to highlight this as an area of potential misunderstanding is not because I speak for every Kodai-inspired teacher out there. I certainly do not. And it's not because I can speak for the Kodai philosophy as a whole framework. I certainly, again, cannot. That's not my position. That's not what I'm here to do. But because this question specifically uses two of the P's, this question, um, uses preparing and practicing in the wording. I think it is a good idea to talk about what it looks like to learn a rhythmic and a melodic concept. Because it's true that for some teachers, when they say we are going to learn quarter notes and eighth notes, we are going to learn a beat and a beat subdivision or ta and toddy, when they say learn, they really do mean we are going to learn the notation, right? And that's, and that is where the lesson starts and that's where the lesson stops and that is it. But I know for so many other teachers, I would say even perhaps the majority of teachers, there is so much more that we care about than memorizing a name with a symbol and calling it a day. Okay. And that is because most of us care that music is taught in a more holistic way. So when we prepare and practice musical concepts, this is an inquiry-based expression of learning. This is an inquiry-based pathway that moves from the known to the unknown. It sets students up to be musical explorers, musical scientists, where they are listening to the things around them and they are comparing it to what they have heard in the past. They are comparing it to their known set of vocabulary and skills and using that known set of vocabulary and skills to kind of test the limits of new musical sounds. Is it fast? faster than X? Is it slower? Is it higher? Is it lower? Well, if I can hear that it's higher then how much higher, okay, so now where could it live in my voice? Where could it live on the instrument? Where could it live on, yes, the staff, but where could it also live in invented notation or where could it live in melodic contour? All of these things are um, a much more broad view of teaching a melodic or a rhythmic element as opposed to sit down and memorize this notation symbol. One of the other pieces of this that I think is very, very important to remember is that when we are teaching music in this way, remember all of this conversation that we had about music being presented in a context? That is one of the other reasons that we are not going to start learning about a rhythmic or a melodic concept by holding up the notation and having students memorize the symbol and the standard Western name. Instead, we are starting with games. We are starting with movement. We are starting with singing. We are starting with collaboration as a way to authentically present music in its context. That singing and playing and looking at each other and smiling, all of that becomes the foundation for the other inquiry-based work we do later. Another way that we present music in its context is, in addition to talking about all of the sonic properties of that context, because it is music, we are also talking about the human element of the sonic properties. How does music exist with the people who create it? So if we were to take an example like um, Obwasimisa, if we were to present this song in context, part of that context would be the game, the beat keeping game of the song where we are passing stones um, around in a circle. And then, so that's, that's a good 
good, that's a good start to creating that context is using the game that goes along with the song. Another thing that we would do though, is talk about the translation. We would also talk about, um, the Akan, the, the role of children's games in Akan culture and what those games are being used in terms of, uh, a playtime, but then also a training ground for, uh, cultural values in that tradition. And this is why inside the planning binder, we don't just have that first page with the notation and the source for the song. It's why we're not stopping there. We have this whole second page with uh, the translation of the song and movement or game directions and cultural notes and song notes where they are available. All of that has to do with creating the human context for the sonic events. So then after we've done this inquiry-based approach to figuring out something new and really using uh, our critical thinking musical minds to, uh, to consider what we have been hearing and using and playing, all of this gets to be expanded on in the future because now what we have done is we have created a conscious musical vocabulary and the value of a vocabulary is that I can say a musical term and the other musicians in my classroom know what I'm talking about. Can you see how that is helpful for collaboration and creation in the future of a music learning experience? And now we can use that vocabulary consciously for things like like part work or arranging or ensemble skills or something like that. So if we were uh, to use this vocabulary with part work, perhaps we are creating different melodic ostinati or rhythmic ostinati, depending on our area of focus. And then maybe students are working together in a small group to arrange it for body percussion or unpitched percussion or recorder or ukulele or barred instruments or whatever it is. And then perhaps as a class, we are thinking of ways to combine all of our ostinati along with maybe a movement activity from preparation, maybe the song and the game itself. And so this becomes a collaborative and critical thinking based approach to music education. It is very active. It is very um, students in the driver's seat. As we interact with each other in a musical context, doing things like playing a singing game or uh, sharing instruments or doing a part work activity where we are creating our own ostinati and figuring out how we want to arrange it and doing all of the rehearsal things around that. In all of these musical experiences, a reality is that these are also, again, human experiences. And that means we have a lot of opportunities from the human side of music education to talk about relationship skills, to talk about responsible decision-making, to talk about social awareness, to talk about self-management, to talk about self-awareness, right? These are the castle SEL competencies. And as students are working, again, within the context of learning a rhythmic or melodic element, as they are working within that uh, lesson objective and creating their own ostinati with each other in their small groups, there's going to be a time where we are going to need to help them practice active listening skills. There's going to be a time where we are going to need to help them practice empathy. These are competencies that are embedded in the teaching and learning of a rhythmic or a melodic concept when we are using this approach to teaching and learning. Again, 
if teaching a melodic concept or a rhythmic concept looked like students sitting down and reading notation on the board and that was it, we wouldn't probably have much need for these other human elements of music education. But because this is a much more broad, um, a much more um, deep and holistic view of music education, we have a very rich set of opportunities to include many different elements inside this one umbrella of teaching, of you know, just teaching a rhythmic concept. I hope that I am articulating this viewpoint well. I hope that I'm being clear in, in how I view music education in an active music room. Because this view of music education, teaching and learning rhythmic and melodic concepts, this has a big impact on how I approach using repertoire that is not directly tied to a rhythmic or a melodic concept. I view this work as so expansive and so exploratory and so interconnected to so many things in, in terms of the human experience of students in the classroom. If I had a different view of what it is like to teach a rhythmic or a melodic concept, I would have a very different approach to including music that's not directly tied to a rhythmic or a melodic understanding. So um, again, I hope that I am articulating this, uh, this viewpoint well. If we were learning how to read and write a symbol primarily or exclusively, we would probably need a lot of additional music to round out our musical skills beyond reading. But because the process of teaching and learning in this way includes so much that impacts my use of quote unquote extra songs. Now, something that we've talked about before, but I want to bring it up here in this context is there are certainly music teachers who divide up their curriculum into isolated units on musical elements. And there are certainly music teachers who have um, isolated SEL time for the music lesson. When I say isolated units on uh, musical elements, I mean there is one unit on form. And then all of the songs are not about a rhythmic or a melodic element. They are about form, um, an isolated unit on expression. And then all of those songs are not chosen to point to a rhythmic or a melodic understanding. They are pointing to an expression understanding. And in other independent contract work that I've done, I have written those lessons. And guess what? At the end of the day, even though that's not my preference for my own personal teaching, at the end of the day, those are still joyful and active musical rooms where learning is absolutely taking place. So I share that to go back to this short answer to this question, in my opinion, is that we are integrating repertoire that does not tie to a rhythmic or a melodic concept. We are integrating that repertoire as often as we want and as often as we think it serves our students in the long run. Let's go back very quickly to this idea of not being able to separate out musical elements from each other. We talked about that in uh, the presentation of repertoire as opposed to isolated drills for teaching musical concepts, specifically rhythmic and melodic concepts. Uh, because there's not a way to isolate these elements, when students are hearing a song in a mode that they do not have conscious knowledge of, but they're using that same song for a rhythmic concept that they will have conscious knowledge of, we cannot say, all right, friends, only experience the rhythm here. Do not listen to the melody 
right? Do not listen to the tonality. That's not going to happen. All of those things are embedded in the song itself. Let's look at an example of that. This is Betty Larkin, and this is an ORF arrangement that I would do with upper grades. In the alto xylophone part, you are going to hear ta dimitati, rest, rest, ta dimitati, rest, rest. We can hear right away that this song is not in a do major pentatonic mode. So can we still do this song if students do not have conscious knowledge of modalities beyond do major pentatonic? Yes, absolutely. If we are using this in the context of a rhythmic understanding, ta dimitati, rest, rest, ta dimitati, rest, rest, then yes, absolutely, that rhythmic understanding will stay, but students are still having a lot of experiences hearing and interacting with music outside of their consciously learned melodic vocabulary. Now, when the melody of the song comes in, that opening rhythm is takadi takadi ta dimitati. Hop around, skip around, oh Betty Larkin. Hop around, skip around, oh Betty Larkin. Hop around, skip around, oh Betty Larkin. Also, my dear darling, steal, steal. So after students have gone through the learning process for Ta Dimi, and after they have been playing it in that arrangement over and over and over and over and over, right? Uh, after that, the next rhythmic element that students would work on, depending on your sequence, is takadi. Well, now when that melody comes in, can you hear how the known ta-dimi interacts with the unknown takadi, takadi? Hop around, skip around, oh Betty Larkin. Hop around, skip around, oh Betty Larkin. Hop around, skip around, oh Betty Larkin. Also, my dear darling. So when we are teaching, when we are choosing repertoire, we absolutely want extractable phrases where the new element is crystal clear. However, there is also the reality that we cannot isolate any of these musical elements. All right, the very last thing I want to touch on is this idea of just for fun as a curricular objective. Because we've talked today a lot about conscious musical experiences with rhythmic and melodic concepts. And we have talked about SEL. We have talked about cultural understandings. But again, all of it has been within this context of um, how expansive the teaching and learning process is for rhythm and melody. What if we press the brakes on that and take a hard pivot to doing things just for fun? This is something that I think is very important to do in music in general, but then especially with these lower grades, we see this, uh, this just for fun category being used a lot. And I think that is very, very important. Basically, every class has an opportunity for something to be sung or moved to or played or interacted with in some way that is just for fun, for the love of the game, just for the love of music, just for the love of looking around the people in our circle and smiling at each other. And like I said, this is, in my opinion, especially important for younger grades, but it's also certainly important for older grades as well. So things like uh, warm-up routines or a change of pace section or a closing routine, all of these are really great places for these just-for-fun elements of a full uh, music lesson.
So in this um, lesson sequence, as Anne Molesky would call it, this lesson flow, I can have a section with a very specific rhythmic objective, and I can have a section with a very specific melodic objective. But then guess what? I could also have several points in addition to this rhythmic and this melodic experience that are just enjoyable activities for the love of singing or moving or speaking or playing or whatever it is. So if the lesson flow, again, to use Anne's term there, if that lesson is set up to include many modes of musicking, then in my opinion, it is not a question of should we do a rhythmic melodic concept or something that is just for fun. In my opinion, I don't see why we can't have both especially if we are teaching in a lesson that is 25 minutes to maybe 45 minutes. There's a lot of time to cover a lot of musical ground. So that is it within the specific structure of one lesson that I think that there is plenty of room for a just for fun element. But when we back up and look at the big picture of the year, there are also times in the year that we, as the musicians in the room, we need to shake things up. We need something different. We need to change the pace. And so that is where in the kind of broader scope and sequence, I do see uh, plenty of room for adding some just for fun musical one-off units. Because if we are getting in the groove of kind of veering back towards only reading notation and, you know, music education as notation education, that will wear on us. That will wear on our hearts. That will wear on our presence in the classroom. And we will feel that. So sometimes for many different reasons, it feels like a breath of fresh air to do a one-off lesson that is completely unrelated to anything uh, with a rhythm or a melodic tie-in. While we are on this subject of the one-off lessons, like the isolated listening activities and isolated movement activity and isolated ensemble piece, uh, stuff like that, these things that are musically meaningful, but are very truly not directly tied to a rhythmic or a melodic learning objective. To me, these isolated one-off lessons, these are like the garnish on top of a really beautiful dish. <laughs> Uh, like a garnish that brings the whole dish together. I think that they are absolutely part of having a well-rounded curriculum. But if you were just to hand someone a plate full of the garnish, right? Like a plate full of cilantro, they might not be very happy about that as a meal as a whole. So when I think about this topic, I absolutely have an acknowledgement that these one-off lessons or these um, kind of just for fun segments of the curriculum are, they, they serve a very important purpose for us. The kind of circular trap that I can sometimes get into in this conversation though is, uh, listening activities and movement activities are absolutely crucial for the curriculum. But again, those are things that I would consider to be embedded in the teaching and learning of a rhythmic and a melodic concept. 
So um, it's not listening activities are just for the isolated one-off lessons and um, folk dances are not just for a unit on folk dancing. All of these things, while they can be their own segment of the curriculum, the just for fun, one-off, um, whatever you want to call it, the cilantro part of the curriculum, right? Um, they're also what I would consider to be a part of a well-rounded rhythmic and melodic learning experience. All right, the very last piece of this conversation that I think is worth addressing before we have our cut and dry answer of how many songs to include that are outside the rhythmic or the melodic uh, learning process. Um, the last piece to consider, in my opinion, is scheduling considerations. So basically, how often do we see students? Because if we have a schedule where we see students several times a week, we might be making some very different curricular decisions as opposed to someone who sees their students, uh, you know, once every eight days or once a week for one trimester out of the year, and then they don't see them again until the following year, right? Our repertoire is going to have to wear different hats depending on our scheduling time for students. So this is one of the other reasons that so many people have different ideas about this question is because it absolutely depends on what your repertoire needs to do based on your scheduling priorities. All right, friends, this is a topic where people have a very broad range of opinions and some opinions on this topic people hold with a very tight fist. And for some people, they hold it with a very open fist. And that is because our priorities can be different from classroom to classroom. That is because our teaching processes can look different from classroom to classroom. And that is because our teaching schedules will look different from classroom to classroom. So let's go back to this question. How often should we include repertoire that is not connected to a rhythmic or a melodic concept? It absolutely depends on what the teaching process, in my opinion, it absolutely depends on what the teaching process for that rhythmic and melodic concept looks like. And the short answer is we will use these extra repertoire experiences as often as we want and as often as we see it serving our students in the long run. <laughs> 